Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How are you today, Sean? I'm super as always, Brian. That's it, Sean? That's all you have to say? Super as always? As always. Well, you could say I'm feeling general contempt of the world, malaise, cruelty, coldness, frigidity, kind of like the tone of today's book slash film. <laughs> yes, and the tone of today's actress who we'll be focusing on. That book is The Piano Teacher by Nobel Prize laureate Alfreda Jelinek, and that actress, Sean, is... The inimitable, inconquerable, impervious <laughs> iceberg <laughs> of talent... Isabel Huppert. <laughs> There's been a debate on the internet recently. Is Isabel Huppert the greatest living actress? For the longest time, at least in Anglophone culture, I think that phrase was only associated with Meryl Streep. Sadly. And it, yeah, I agree. You know, Meryl's great, but there's lots of room on Parnassus. Mount Parnassus has <laughs> lots of places. And how do you feel about the fact that now, with this 2016 Annis Mirabilis that Isabel has had, she's finally getting her due from a lot of people? I am always a little bit disappointed when it finally becomes someone's turn. Although I will push those uh, uh, reservations aside and say that we have seen Elle and I am a complete champion for that picture. And it's it's hopefully bringing Isabel Huppert to a much, much wider audience. We are recording this before the Oscar nominations come out. We have every expectation that she will get her well-deserved nomination. Well, Brian, the last time we had every expectation <laughs> that a, a difficult woman of a certain age was going to get what was coming to her, we were wrong. So <laughs> let's just... <sighs> yeah, yeah, all right. So, But we're not talking about Elle. We're not talking about Isabel Huppert's current work. We're talking about probably the role for which she was best known previously, The Piano Teacher, a film by Michael Haneke. Now, we've both read the book. Sean, you picked this book up before we ever even decided to do this book-to-film adaptation series. You picked it up sometime last year in a used bookshop and you started reading it, Yeah, I stupidly thought this was holiday reading. (laughs) I brought this uh, to the great state of Maine. Yep. Where about 34 pages in, I was like, I'd rather go kayaking. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I think the book kind of lay dormant, <laughs> like a like an unexploded bomb in our lives for quite some time, until we realized, okay, if we're going to do this book-to-film adaptation series, what a great chance for both of us to read The Piano Teacher. Oh, that was a fateful decision, wasn't mm, it? Yes. Yes. I, I don't even know how to describe the effect of this book. Cynical? Cynical, yes, and deeply unpleasant. I mean, there is something amazing about this book. It's it's a absolute knockout of a book in certain ways, but it is no fun. It's not even just about it being fun. It's just, it drips with... Contempt. For men. For women. For sex. For parents, for children, for society, (laughs) for music. (laughs) For everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about Alfreda Yelinek. The the photo of her that's on the book, did you notice? Yeah, yeah. She looks like something (laughs) happened to her once. I would say she looks a bit like Ava Braun's aunt or something Mm -hmm. like that. She, Mm -hmm. She looks quite imperious and a bit scary. I don't want to be dismissive because I think this book has something powerful, provocative to say about sexual violence, about the objectification and role of women in European society, about sexual repression. 
but it is not a comfortable read. Yeah, and there's nothing saying that a good work of literature has to be readable. I think the hardest part of the book was probably getting past those first 35 pages because the book is written in such a style where there's absolutely no dialogue. Yeah. There's no direct speech or indirect speech. Every single line is contemptible of something and someone. Yeah. And it's written also with this kind of intense, dense, intricate prose, which we're also reading in English translation, right? Because it's, it's been translated from German. Yeah, I have to say that the translation by Joachim Nugrasel uh, was actually really good. Good job, Joachim. Yeah. Or Joachim, or however it's pronounced. Mr. Nugrosel. <laughs> but I mean, every single line of this has intricate and powerful, but very, very upsetting imagery, where people are compared to things like slabs of meat, and like rotting carcasses, and... Just putrefaction. Yeah, piles of refuse. In general. <laughs> Literally. Also, for a relatively slim book, it took a while to read because every page is just dripping with this contempt for humanity. And the story, such as it is, it doesn't really get going until maybe, what, like the last 40, 50 pages? And then it, like, bam, 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 hits you with shock after shock. Did you find that you had a voyeuristic compulsion to read, not just because we had to do this for the podcast? I was, like, dreading returning to it for the longest time, and then, I feel like we're slightly in the confessional here in the podcast, I will tell you that I could suddenly relate a lot more to the book as it went on. Hmm, tell me, Diane. <laughs> Do you know? Before we say how, in what ways, my life is like the piano teacher, should we say a bit about what the piano teacher is about? Yeah, Erica Kohut is a talented piano teacher. She is the daughter of a woman called Mother. <laughs> Mrs. K. Mother. Mother, I'm playing Schubert again. <laughs> um, she is the daughter of Mother Kohut, who had her late in life. Her father was carted off to a, a home yeah, many years before. I think in a butcher's van. Erica is a very talented pianist. She's viewed as a beacon of triumph and talent and superiority by her mother. At the same time, she's also viewed as an inferior, weak, selfish brat. She's contemptuously infantilized. I guess, you know, it's not unlike the way Gilbert Osmond in Portrait of a Lady treats his daughter Pansy, right? It's like the mother wants to keep her in like a glass case, like a precious object. This woman has eagle-eyed... Oh, I mean, like, if an eagle had four eyes. Yeah, she doesn't want her to buy frilly dresses. She doesn't want her to put on makeup. She wants her to be home on time. Right, if she's... She wants her to sleep in the same bed as her. Yeah, they sleep in the same bed, and they've been living in this strangely codependent relationship for far too long, because Erica's, what, in, like, her 30s. Yeah, and it is violent as well. They have a, they have a violent mother-daughter relationship. <laughs> it's not one, but I think maybe... Three seeds where they rip hair out of each other's heads? Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the setup, and that situation goes on at great length for quite a bit of the book. Erica resents her mother because her mother surveils her. And what does Erica do when she's able, on those rare instances, to escape her mother's watchful eye? Sniffle around bushes and hedges for covert public sex. She sniffs wank rags, she collects the tissues, she pisses outdoors... Mother, I'm cottaging again. <laughs> we should be clear. She doesn't actually engage in any of these sexual activities. She watches 
she collects the realia of the situation, but she does not participate. Right. And here, I suppose, people with remembering what I said earlier be like, in what way possibly could Brian relate to this? Well, I, I have to say, like, I did not grow up in a family with this terrible upbringing, let it be said. But I was someone who was groomed and grew up with this sense of, like, achievement, right? And I've spoken to other people that I know who've kind of been in the same boat when they're adolescents or young adults. You are so successful on, like, a certain kind of plane, and then you're kind of so incompetent and ignorant about bodies and sex and other things, right? And so in some ways, maybe later in life, you sort of lash out by pursuing what seems like reckless or crazy behavior. Does that does that make sense, what I'm saying? a lot of sense, bro. <laughs> Sean's, like, Sean's looking at me and being like, yeah, that no, makes no, no. a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I completely, I completely agree with you. Yeah, and so... The novel, when it finally gets going, shows how Erica has this longing, not just for the quote-unquote dirty, animalistic life that she sees others around her in Viennese society pursuing, but for a kind of self-annihilation that comes in the form of one particular student named Walter Klemmer, who is clearly attracted to her. Their relationship takes on this very strange kind of hunter-prey dynamic. You don't know who's who, though. Yeah, where their their power games are flipping back and forth. There's elements of S&M domination. Humiliation. Yeah, and then ultimately, Walter feels humiliated and disgusted by the, the sexuality that Erica reveals, and he kind of snaps in a very re- typical... Brutish. Brutish male way and rapes and beats her to a to a bloody pulp. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, that is why we basically described the least appealing book you could possibly imagine. Well, Brian, here's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we show our listeners how deeply unappealing this book is yeah. by reading a few choice tidbits. Well, I have an even better idea. Instead of choice, why don't we just play a game? Oh, I love games. Okay, so the game will be... We'll just pick pages at random and see, like, what incredibly cynical, anti-human images and lines Alfreda Jelinek has on a typically random page. I want to go first. Okay. Um, 170. Okay. Let's see, 170. Here we are. Then a shriek slices the air in half, and a slashed, bloody hand is pulled out of a coat pocket. The blood drips on the new coat. It leaves deep stains. The girl to whom the hand belongs to screams in terror and blubbers in pain. After a moment of shock in which she feels nothing, the flautist's shredded tool, which will have to be sewn up, the hand that presses and releases keys, has shards and shivers struck in it. Oh, yes, this is such a great moment in the the book because what has Erica done here? Well, so this female who she's attacked was flirting with Herr Klemmer earlier. So to get revenge... Erica breaks a glass and puts it in the coat pocket of this young woman. So when the young woman reaches into her coat pocket, her fingers are immediately torn up. And this causes huge chaos in the music school. And also the girl has cut open her hands, but this is a kind of motif of blood and butchery that's run through the whole book because we learn earlier, don't we, that Erica has this fascination with cutting things open. Mm. Since she's been a kid, Mm. she's been fascinated with cutting herself, including cutting her genitals in one particularly gruesome scene where they kind of bleed all over the place. And this idea of kind of like 
apertures and the way that people are flesh covered in parchment. Sean, Sean is like turning pale. Maybe we should, maybe we should go to another page. So okay. pick another page. 102. Okay, let's try 102. This fierce dog baring its teeth as it strides up and down the bars, the fur bristling on the back of its neck, is always exactly one centimeter away from its victim, with a dark growling in its throat, a red light in its pupils. She is waiting for that one command, for that steaming yellow hole in the wide mass of snow, a tiny cup of piss. The urine is still warm, and soon the hole will freeze into a thin yellow pipe in the mountain, a signal for the skier, the coaster, the hiker, revealing that human presence became a brief threat here, and then moved on. Ugh. I didn't even know what that yeah, was. It doesn't matter. Literally, there's like dozens and dozens, hundreds of passages like that, where every single act is turned into bodily fluids. Something fecund. Yeah. Now, my turn. Yeah. All right, one more. Uh, 212. <clears throat> Mother goes over to the poison cabinet in the parlor. She drinks a liqueur, then several more. The liqueur makes her feel weary and heavy. She lies down on the sofa and drinks some more. Behind the door, something is proliferating like a cancer that keeps growing even after its owner has long since died. Mother keeps drinking. <laughs> and the thing that's growing behind the the door, right, is that... It's Clemmer's dick. Yeah, well, it's because what's happened is when finally Erica and Clemmer's relationship, they kind of don't want to keep it a secret anymore. They come to the house where obviously you remember Erica does not have her own room. Yeah. They go inside. Mother is like freaking out because she doesn't want a man anywhere near her daughter. They ram an armoire up against the door. Mother is like banging on the door. What is going on? And they're actually not fucking in there, are they? This is the scene in which Erica has revealed to Herr Klemmer just exactly what she wants him to do to her. Which is? The letter. The letter. <laughs> in which Erica writes down in excruciating detail uh, the kind of things she wants Herr Klemmer to do to her. We don't have to go into it, apart from saying that it's deeply sadomasochistic. My favourite part, which I learned something from this, is that if you soak ropes in water and let them dry, they'll get even tighter and chafe even more when you've hogtied your willing victim. But let's be fair, like... The description of things in this letter is the kind of stuff that the people who designed the hoist have never even thought of, no, right? No, they are vanilla compared to this. So Erica, who, as far as we know, has only seen sex acts and is, is a kind of complete virgin, asks Clemmer to enact for her the most sadomasochistic thing in which she is completely objectified. She's an object. She's tied up. He locks her in a room. He goes about his business. He comes back. He pisses on her. Yeah. He puts her through such excruciating, torturous pleasure. Yeah. The pleasure of complete humiliation. Yeah. There's a line where she says, when I ask you to loosen the ropes, I want you to tighten them even more. Right. And again, I don't think we want to demean any kind of consensual sexual activity. No, right? we're not. Like, you and I would never think of doing that. I mean, whatever gets people off, as long as people are, are mutually enjoying it, is great. And I think there are definitely scenes in this book where the power play between Erica and Clemmer is arousing and exciting in the sense of their kind of battle. This one. That first scene that they have where she kind of flips the script on him and becomes this kind of dominant woman withholding orgasm from yeah. him in a, in a smelly, disgusting uh, toilet. 
The poster for the film depicts this scene which you've just mentioned with the two of them on the floor and they're kissing. And the bathroom in the picture looks quite clean. Well, I have to say, the trailer for the film, <laughs> and it may just be because it's being sold to a kind of elite art house audience, but it looks so sanitized compared <laughs> to this book. It's like the greatest love story. <laughs> Of our generation. Yeah, I don't... What year is this? The piano teacher. What year is this? It's like 2000 or 2001, right? So it was still in that era where you had people, like, actually narrating trailers. I think they do this a lot more in foreign language films. The fires blazed on the filthy toilet floor. This book presents a lot of challenges for adapting, right? As you already said... The whole thing is very dense narrative description. There is no dialogue, right? So the first part of the book is more or less from Erica's perspective as she goes off on these nocturnal journeys. At another point, it shifts and is a lot more from Walter's perspective as he's trying to unpick what it is about this woman that's going on under her skin. I mean, it might even be called Under the Skin. This is very much about two people wanting to penetrate the bodies and consciousness of one another. And there's something about Yelenek's prose that is impenetrable, even the most violent scenes. And you're certainly wondering, what did they actually say to each other? Yeah, this would be a kind of a really interesting project for a really good screenwriter. So I'm very curious to see what will happen. There's, there's a lot of onus on the screenwriter to say, how did they speak? How did they feel? And also, I read that Hanukkah wanted to work with Isabel Huppert for a very long time and apparently offered her other parts in other of his movies, and she just turned them down and turned them down. And then finally, he brought her the piano teacher, and he's like, I can only make this film with you, which is similar to the story that Verhoeven tells about Elle. But apparently, Hanukkah said to Huppert, don't read the book. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you feel that this character of Erica is an ideal role for Isabel? She has so many sides to her, but I guess what people probably most associate her with, right, is a kind of dark, fearless sexuality. These kinds of roles. In your estimation, what makes Isabel Huppert so great? Well, she's one of those actresses who gives you a lot of respect for acting. You see that she's done over a hundred films. I don't think she's the person who's like craving the next blockbuster or paycheck or award. I think she's the kind of person who says, whether explicitly or not, I am a vessel for this story. It's a bit like that time we saw Julianne Moore in conversation where she said that, you know, as an actor, I don't want the director telling me what to do because I'm an actor and I know how to act. And I get the impression that Isabel Hubert operates in the same vein. But I think she enters every role knowing exactly how this character thinks, their motivations, their deep pathologies, mm. their weirdness, whether it's a few lines in a film like I Heart Huckabee's or if it's L, or if it's this, or if it's Weed Fam, or if it's Souvenir, which we saw at LFF, which is a completely frivolous piece of fun little filmmaking. I just think she is a person who knows her craft. The one thing I would question you on is that word motivation, because we have actually seen Isabel Huppert speak a couple of times in person yeah, at the London Film Festival at the Q&A for L, and I've noticed her in lots of interviews. People are trying to draw her out Why does this character do this? Why does she do that? And it strikes me that Isabel has a very European approach to this. And it's almost like, well, it's just what she does. The script says she does this thing in one scene, another thing in another scene, because people are fundamentally 
unknowable yeah. and made up of contradictory impulses. It's a hallmark of kind of all sorts of European drama. I think it's a hallmark of this book. Reason and passion are kind of just these two parallel hands on Erica Kohut's keyboard. Very good. That kind of, she just alternates. At one moment, she's the kind of reasonable, rational piano teacher. And the next one, she's like sniffing a cum rag <laughs> left in a public park. And Coupère has that kind of amazing neutrality as an actress that she's just like, I will do whatever the scenario asks me to do without needing to figure out a way to justify yeah. it. Yeah, I think she knows all these things about the character. I just feel that when it comes to like people asking her questions at Q&As and stuff, like you gotta do the junket as part of the deal. But I don't think she needs everyone to completely psychoanalyze to the nth degree. When she was making Elle with Paul Verhoeven, I believe there was no kind of like reasoning of her character, what she's feeling, what she's thinking, because he just knew exactly that she was in control of this and to let her do what she wanted to do. Do you remember what the advice that Julianne Moore got from Ridley Scott? What was that? Close your mouth. <laughs> Good advice. Good she, advice. You're, you're an FBI agent shooting a gun. Why would your mouth be open? She said, best direction I've ever gotten. Yeah. They're both right up there on Parnassus, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Okay. Before we press play on, on this troubling <laughs> work, I guess the question is, why did we read this and why are we watching this? Does it have anything to say about women, society, feminism? I mean, I'm asking you to second-guess the Nobel Prize Committee here a bit, Sean. I mean, in many ways, this is feminist in the sense that here's a female with a very particular determined idea of her own independent sexuality. But you could say that the patriarchal structures of which her mother is also complicit in has warped these potentially healthy ideas into something deeply cruel and uh, self-loathsome. I guess the thesis of it seems to be the more you repress and deny sexuality of women, the more it bursts out in reckless ways. The other force within it is the brutish, the ultimately brutish force of men which takes advantage of her. Erica is badly raised by her mother and then badly treated by Walter. It's a pretty grim depiction of women's yeah. lives. I think in many ways, Erica's sexual liberation has been so mutilated her mm. entire life that when it finally gets to be expressed, it's deformed and it's ugly. Like, we have nothing against people getting off in whatever consensual way they want. They don't feel like accurately what she wants to do. Right, I, and I, th I think that's very well put because the question of that letter, that kind of document that she writes, it's like, is that really what she wants? It has something to do with the kind of debate that goes on these days about, like, porn culture. Are women, like, absorbing the kind of violent images that male purveyors have kind of thrust upon them? Is that what they legitimately want themselves or not? Well, the only sexuality that she seems to see is the one that she can scurry off to see in the most uh, rank places. And when you're presented with one image of what human sexuality is, when you've also been nurtured with this complete contempt for everybody else in the world. Yeah, and for bodies and everything. Yeah. Yeah, that this kind of becomes normal to you. Right, there's a way in which all of these desires of dominance could be productively channeled into all sorts of relationships for Erica and or Walter, but Walter does not seem to be ready to deal yeah. with any of this. And it also shows what happens when men are so thin-skinned in their own fragile masculinity of what they do to show how just how strong they are. I think we should watch the film. I'm really excited about this. Yeah? Do you think you're going to... Enjoy Isabel in this movie? Um, I don't want to use such simplistic language. 
Do you think we're going to avert our eyes quite a bit in this? I think we'll want to, but I don't think we will. Okay. Let's tickle those ivories. It's time for the piano teacher. Yay! Professeur, quoi Je suis désolé. Et de quoi Pour tout à l'heure, chez le marchand de journaux. Et pourquoi Pourquoi es-tu désolé Et de quoi Ça va pas, ça. Il suffit pas de dire que tu es désolé, si je ne sais même pas de quoi. Es-tu désolé parce que tu es un salaud ou parce que tes amis sont des salauds Ou encore parce que toutes les femmes sont des salopes Puisqu'elles font de toi un salaud Ou bien simplement parce que tu t'es fait pincer La leçon est terminée. Salut Nous sommes revenus pour le deuxième part. Salut je pense que c'est salaud, c'est oh. salaud, oh, c'est pas salut, c'est salaud, vous êtes salaud, saloperie. Yes, indeed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, of course, you're, you're a pig, you're a filthy person. <laughs> yes, you're... yes, and that is Erica Kohat all over. Sean, we have seen the piano teacher, also known in its original French as La Pianiste. Strangely enough, this was an Austro-French co-production, and we were a bit confused as to whether it was really in French or in German or what. Before we go into the film, I was very confused by this. Isabelle Hubert and Anne Didot. Girardot. <laughs> Gal Gadot. <laughs> Anne. And Cam Gigagnet. Yeah. <laughs> it's Anne Girardot as the mother. Yes. And... Benoit Magimel, I okay, think, so as Benoit Walter. Magimel and Anne Giraudot and Isabelle, Isabelle Huppert are 100% speaking French to each other all the time. What confuses me, at one point, I was like, what? Is this file, like, gone out of sync? And I was like, no, I think what's going on is that the other characters, the extras, not extras, but like the secondary roles, appear to me to be filmed with the actor speaking German and then dubbed into French. I think this is a somewhat common practice in kind of weird pan-European filmmaking. It's just a bonkers thing. I don't really understand. Yeah, but if you're used to dubbing, you just get used to it. Anyway, I don't think we thought about it for more than two minutes, did we? No, because we got way too into the story. You were, I think, breathless. You loved the title sequence. It was black text on white, and then it was intercut with um, piano playing, wasn't it? I love anything played in contrast, especially black titles that are not scored, because it jolts you from the moment it starts. And stylistically, it's presenting a technique that's used to let you know immediately that your views will be contrasted. Absolutely right, that contrast and jolt, I think, are two, le mo les mots justes, so to speak. You have this overhead shot of these hands, constant hands, on the piano keys. They're disembodied hands. And you hear Isabelle's voice as Erica barking orders to the students about how they're playing. And then the sound will just cut out to a black, very austere text saying, Le pianiste, en film de Michael Haneke, you know, whatever. 
And it's this kind of constant cutting back and forth, this contrast, things just jump cutting from one to the next without explanation. And that kind of runs through stylistically the whole thing. Yeah, it? very much so. We talked a lot about how unpleasant hateful the characterizations in Alfreda Yelenek's novel were. Michael Haneke definitely jumps right into that. Like, the first scene between Erica and her mother is direct conflict. Did you think that the characterization of mother and daughter was the same in the book? The way I see her, it's like she's a, she's a huge monster contained in a small cage. The mother? The mother. In the book or in the, the film? In the book. Uh-huh. It's like a child spreading its own feces on a wall. Say more. It's like everything the mother does is counterintuitive to her life and happiness and peace. But she does it to exert some kind of control, some strange defiance. Completely going from zero to 60. And we get elements of that in the film, but not to the same extent. We get her kind of like violently confiscating things from her daughter, like blouses and such. But never does she, you know, have this, the full-blown fireworks, the technicolor bloodletting. So would you say that the relationship between mother and daughter, would you say that there's something about the way it's depicted that has a kind of innate tenderness and codependence? I don't think it's tenderness as in true tenderness. I think it's just a runoff remnant of codependency. Even after they have that huge fight at the start over the dress that Eric is wearing and they're pulling each other's hair and then Hanukkah cuts to them saying, Oh, je suis désolé, maman. Oh, je t'aime, je t'aime. You know... Can I tell you how I imagined it in the book? Yeah. Okay, this just shows you what I'd like if I was a director. So in those scenes, it's like the fight scenes from Dynasty, Dynasty, uh-huh. okay, combined with the most over-the-top opera you can possibly think. And the camera would, like, swoop around in circles, you know, from every possible angle while these two women, like, threw vases at each other and smacked each other I- and <laughs> tore each other's hair and, like, you know, ripped each other's clothes and, like, clawed each other's eyes. Like, this completely crazy opera was playing What well, can I say? This is revealing why Douglas Sirk is your favourite film director, Sean, because what you basically want is, like, bongos de la muerte with, like, swirling cameras and, like, leaves blowing in from the door outside. Like, I think Sirk would be tame compared to my imagination but, So what I'm saying is, like, it's interesting you saying that because in a way, Michael Haneke does everything possible to be austere neutral blank in terms of his cinematography right there's kind of static shots and there's this kind of emphasis of just the banality of their behavior even when they're kind of saying and doing hateful things well it's funny you say that i mean do you want to give some examples of where this blank neutrality is used to disarming and jolting effect it's a great match in terms of Huppert's style of acting and Hanukkah's style of directing like okay so we're introduced to the character of erica kohut we see her as as a piano teacher. She's this frumpy, sexually repressed woman, lives with her mother. She cares about Schubert. She cares about Beethoven, classical music. She's saying to her students all these things like, one wrong note in Beethoven is preferable to a wrong interpretation. She just seems like the most cutting, horrible teacher you could ever have. She's also got a teacher that says these things without even looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's just completely condescending superior, right? So if you haven't read the book, you don't know what's going on in Erica's mind. And then we see her leave class one day, leave her lessons, and walk through a shopping mall where we're already like, oh my god, what is this woman doing walking through the modern world? Because she lives in the world of high art and Schubert. And she walks straight into a porno theater. She walks into a cabine. And suddenly, 
our eyes are assaulted by the images of serious hardcore porn. Yeah, it's serious. From serious Michael Hanukkah, porn. right? Uh, serious hardcore porn. But what I'm saying about the neutrality of it is that Hanukkah's camera just films this, and literally, it seems like Huppert is just saying, okay, the script says to me, walk into the cabine, watch the porn, pick up the rag that is full of semen, put it to my nose, and sniff it. And that's just what she does. It's like she literally is like, point A to B to C, I will sniff the rag, I will look, I will walk out. And so there's no way in which her gestures or her behavior are like overly telegraphing anything. So what's the Sean version? Okay. The Bongos de la Muerte she, version? She, she finds a bin full of cummy wank rags. She, but we reach into the bin, knocking over the entire bin, and falls to her knees, okay? She clutches the, the wank rag to her nose and just starts screaming. <laughs> But would Huppert follow that direction? Something tells me, Sean, that if you tried to give her that direction, she'd just stare at you blankly and say, mm, C'est intéressant, mais je pense que non. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. I love your version. You should do the Gus Van Sant shot-by-shot remake of your version. But putting your version to one side, did you think that this like radical, cold neutrality worked for this story? I do think it works, but the reason why I think of that is because it is presented in a stylistic contrast to the novel, which I, I think is dirty, dark, dank, wet, grim, bodily. It's uh, all about flesh and like... Fecund. Yeah. yeah. And feces. Yeah, and I think that's great because if you're going to contrast something, do it properly. It's, it's really clinical. In fact, that scene that we mentioned in the first half where Erica cuts herself and cuts her own vagina. Ugh. Well, the first change that they do is that in the book, this is a flashback that she's done as a girl. In the film, we basically just see Erica as an adult in her 30s with her mother. It's just for no explanation. It's a little bit before dinner time, right? At the Kohut house. <laughs> and she's like, mother's cooking dinner. Erica's in the bathroom. And she just, without, again, just in the same way with the cum rag, mm. she just takes a razor walks over to the bathtub, cuts her vagina, and we see the blood drip down. It's filmed in a long shot where we're like, wait, what's she doing? And then we see the blood. Yeah, and but she does everything so methodically, like it's a routine almost. Yeah, and then she walks to dinner. This was a flourish by Hanukkah. It, well, what ha describe what happened. Okay, so after she's finished, she puts like a, a sanitary towel in to, to like to keep to keep it together. Keep it together, keep it together forever and ever. Brian, we don't have the copyright for that song. Oh. In your operatic Sean version, could Madonna play Erica Koha? Never. Who would it be? Oh, it would be a serious actress like Isabel Adjani. <laughs> One Isabel to another. Oh, yeah. Carry on, sorry. So after she's finished her deed, because her mother is calling her for dinner, and she puts what I thought was an enormous sanitary towel on. And we see her wash her hands and put the razor away, and then she walks out to dinner. She, her mother like questions her daughter's mood, and she's like, "Oh, I know why you're so annoyed. That's why." And we see this blood roll, rolling down her leg, and her mother just assumes that it's she's like menstruating. I think I mean, she says something like, "Oh, Erica." She chastises her for like getting blood everywhere and just being unclean, as it were. But again, it's presented with this just kind of like there's no over the topness to. It. I mean. I think you found that whole section quite excruciating. You were squirming. Well, I, I was squirming because I didn't know what Hanukkah was going to present it as. Mm -hmm. Like, I was squirming for fear that it would be gratuitous. 
There's several recurring moments of bloodletting in this film. There's that moment. There's later the moment where Erica puts the cut glass in the girl's pocket. Of course, there's the beating. Mm -hmm. And there's a last image, which also has self-inflicted blood. It's interesting, like, what you say about the clinical cleanness. That neutrality makes the bright red of wounds and bruises and all of that actually stand out so much more. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah? yeah, yeah. What else is different than it is in the book? We talked about, I think, that the book goes on and on and on, establishing the mother and Erica's routine, their way of life, their past history, their flashbacks, and you really don't get to any kind of plot involving Erica and Walter's affair until well into the book. But the film cuts right to that. The Walter plotline gets going more or less in the second scene when they show up at a piano concert in someone's apartment and Walter is there and he's aggressively and obviously flirting with Erica and ostentatiously showing how well he plays the piano and how much he can talk about Schubert. My reading of the book was that Walter was always watching but from the side and it took him, it was almost as if we were not privy to the workings of his mind. Whereas in this version, Walter's intentions, his personality, his way of being is self-evident. Did you like the actor who played Walter? Ah! Uh... I don't think I liked him, no, but I think that's good. In what sense? We had a debate, ladies and gentlemen, about whether we would or we wouldn't. I wouldn't. That's what you say, but I don't think that's actually true. Well, how big do they say his dick is in the book? <laughs> He's quite tall, and Isabel, as we know, is a diminutive woman, so there is quite a distinction between them. He just has that puppy dog horniness. He's like a man boy. Right? Like, he's as tall and physically developed as a man, but he has that, like, hormonal... Immaturity. Yeah. Sniffing around her. The minute he sees her, he's like, I'm in love with my teacher. I have the hots for my teacher. And I'm gonna get her by, like, showing off how enthusiastically I can play Schumann and Schubert. But interestingly, in one of my favorite scenes, although she's probably turned on by the attention he's giving her, she, again presents such cold disdain to the way that he plays music, so the entire other faculty members of the conservatoire are like, he's absolutely wonderful. And she's just like, I found his histrionics, frankly, unpleasant, you know? Mm. But the way that Hanukkah films her, and this was like such a great shot, She's hearing him play in his audition for the conservatoire. She knows that he's been coming on to her. She's been, like, resisting it. We watch her as she listens to Schubert, played by Walter, and she's just sitting there impassively, but her hands are fidgeting. And this is, like, Isabel's genius. Because, of course, Erica is a woman who communicates with her hands. Like, her hands are these... Her instrument. And then, of course, in her words, she's saying, oh, no, I found everything that he was doing distasteful. But it's just in that tiny gesture that we sense what's vibrating through her body. Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know you made fun of the trailer that, like, you know, is saying, like, a love story. Yeah. In a world where one woman locked herself away, one man found the key. Yeah, exactly. But although we thought that that was just a PR gimmick, I actually think that the movie reads a little bit more that way than the book does. The book basically is premised on the fact that all human relationships 
are a form of violence, right? And yet, in the film, by watching Erica and Walter with their flirtations and her thawing and his coming on to her, it does feel like it's going to be this sort of romance at times. Like, oh, this impetuous student is going to break through the veneer of his uptight teacher. But isn't that to mess with our conventions of what a love story on cinema is? Because then eventually, when he's revealed to be a completely abusive masculine sadist... Well, actually, the first big reveal is that she has these sadomasochistic fantasies, and then his violent response to it just shatters our whole sense of what this kind of romance was. Yeah, it's very effective, but it operates in quite a different way from the book. Did you feel that, like, even just hearing so much of the classical music gave the film a different tone? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We're not privy to the music in the book. We're given majestic descriptions of how Schubert manifests his talents Mm -hmm. but we don't get to hear any Schubert do you right and this one we get to see pianos being played we get to see uh, singers sing (laughs) we also get the music as a score rather than just a a moment in the film and that's great also because the book is just so gross and (laughs) I think dank is my new way to describe it for some reason I always saw Erica teaching and like Austria is a city of music I always saw her teaching in these like stinky high school gymnasiums that like that like a PE class of 14 year old boys has just taken place in. I actually some of my favorite bits were the scenes of her giving instruction to the students who aren't Walter. Like so there's this boy. This was again one of my favorite oh, yeah. scenes. So basically when Erica herself is going into a shop to look at some porno mags she runs into a group of her male students, teenagers, and they're shocked to see their piano teacher there. And then the next day, she just rips into this kid during his lesson, and she's just like, your interpretation of Beethoven is less transparent than a muddy windscreen, perhaps because of the dirty thoughts that are running through your brain. And she's just like, maybe you should quit this and join a striptease club instead of trying to be a musician. And I'll see you here on Wednesday with your mother. (laughs) And this is like one of Huppert's best scenes in the movie because she's channeling her own self-loathing. And also the hatred of her own mother. Right. The way that her mother has schooled her to find the sexuality distasteful. And in an interesting move that's different from the book, the girl whose hand gets cut open in the film is her student that we've been following. It's not just some random flautist. I think those scenes of her teaching them how to play the piano are so key to her character because she has this absolute mastery and control over this instrument of the piano, but she doesn't have mastery and control over this desire that's bubbling up within her, right? Mm. And Walter is just a completely different kind of student. So these other students just calmly accept her chastisement And he just comes in, he's like cheeky and abrasive, but they're clearly engaged in this battle of wills. It reminds me of... What? The early days of our relationship. (laughs) Who are you? I'm Walter. (laughs) In what way, Sean? I was... Was I having you do etudes? I was cheeky and impish, and I was popping up in places that you didn't want to see me, and I was being over-enthusiastic, and you were... Cold and distant. And Cutting broken. myself. Yes. <laughs> Wearing frumpy outfits. Well, <laughs> your word's not mine, darling. <laughs> okay, so we finally have that scene in the toilet stall where 
having cut open the girl's hand, Walter and Erica finally kiss and engage in sexual contact. Mm. It's pretty sexy. Did you find it sexy? Like, sexy in what way? Well, just because, like, it's sexy in the sense that Walter's going for good old-fashioned, you know, conquering. As any boy would. As any boy would. And, like, you can get behind that, whether you're female or male, to be desired and to be wanted well, he makes sought these, after. He makes this grand gesture. She's hiding in the toilet stall and he, he literally jumps up. He bounds over yeah. the door in this way of saying like I'm Prince Charming coming to like m- jump over the wall to like rescue you from the tower what if she was like midwife you know? <laughs> so the bathroom in the book is disgusting it's some dirty bathroom within another dirty bathroom somewhere else in the music school Walter comes in and like throws her down on like the fetid ground <laughs> where he prepares to like have have his way with her but in the film it's this beautiful white pristine bathroom. The light is billowing through and he seduces her by like grabbing her and planting a Hollywood kiss on her mouth initially. But then he doesn't seduce her in the slightest. No, because it, it changes pretty quickly. Right, because in both the book and the film, she responds with this kind of training. It really struck me the way in which her sexual training of Walter is like a version of the way that she wants to train her music students. She's like, don't come near me. Don't touch. Look at me. Do this. Do that. If you don't, I'm going to leave right now. And he is like blue balled beyond his own limits. And he's like, you can't do this to a man. She like bites his cock at one point, doesn't she? Regardez-moi. Pas votre pénis. Tu sais, c'est soit Taisez-vous. Ne bougez pas, sinon je m'en vais. Je t'aime. Personne ne m'a. Aïe! Je vous dis pour la dernière fois, si vous vous taisez pas immédiatement, vous allez rester seul. Mais pourquoi tu me fais mal? So again, at that point, Erica seems in control, and then she says, I'm gonna write you this letter. And this was where, like, I was again struck by Cooper's incredible performance here. So she shows him this letter. He's completely disgusted by her sadomasochistic desires, her little box of ropes and S&M gear that she's been gathering. And then there's this scene where she comes and she finds him in the locker room of his hockey practice. And she comes to like debase herself and say, I'm so sorry. It's my fault. I should never have shown you any of that. She's prostrating herself and like wanting to suck his dick just to show that she can be a a woman the way he wants her to be a woman. I mean, you're not used to seeing Isabel Huppert being so humiliated yeah. in that way. And also, it's a scene in which anything you would find attractive about Walter Klemmer as this, like, erudite, talented young man who seems beyond his years sexually and intellectually. He's just this, like, unlikable grunt. She tries to give him a blowjob. Well, his dick won't get hard, and then she's trying to suck it so hard that she vomits. He's disgusted. He tells her she's dirty inside and out. She stinks. And he makes her leave the locker room, and in this brilliant piece of mise-en-scene, the door to the locker room opens right onto the ice, and so she's kind of staggering out of the room and slipping and sliding on the ice, and it's this kind of amazing representation of how unstable she now feels. Like... Basically, I think Erica, it really felt for me in the film that her grave mistake is revealing these desires that she has inside. 
because he rejects it completely. She wishes she could take it back. And as she's stumbling on the ice, there's a quick jump cut right to the scene in the apartment where he comes ringing the doorbell, ready to attack and abuse her. And that scene just goes on and on in this slow way. I mean, in the book, that happens very near the end. And it's, again, it's done in that Sean operatic way of these brutal attacks. Whereas here, like, Walter will, like, hit her. Then he'll, like, go in the kitchen to, like, wash his hands. And he's having this running monologue, sort of feeling bad about doing it, but not feeling bad. And then he comes back and does more. And meanwhile... He's, he's locked, locked mother in the other room and she's shouting and it just has this like extended quality. I know you've seen other Hanukkah films. Funny games. Is the violence in Funny Games have a similar... The violence in Funny Games is much worse. But I mean just in the sense of that tone of like a director who's toying with us by like letting things play out in that way. Yeah well what Hanukkah does with violence that I respect him for is that he doesn't present it in any kind of glamorous cinematic way. No. He presents it as brutish and nasty and generally the consequence of petty people who have no other way to exert control. Even when Walter is enacting this violence on Erica in the film, he still feels like a strange, deluded boy who's doing this stuff. You don't feel that he's exerting power, you feel that he's losing power. He's like, now the final scene is close to the book but different in some significant ways. I liked both, to be honest. The film kind of goes full circle in some ways. Erica is replacing the young girl whose hand she sabotaged earlier on. And Erica is standing there completely impassive with an obvious bruise on her face that everyone must have noticed and no one makes any yeah. comment on. They're in the like vestibule in front of the... Great word, Brian. Thank you. In front of the concert hall. Then Walter comes in yes. with other people. He again makes no indication that he is even aware of the fact that he has just abused, beaten, and raped her. Oh, he's aware. You know, I said a moment ago that he's losing his power when mm. he's kicking the shit out of her. This is a scene where he's exerting his power. It's like he's had time to say, well, you know what? I'll show her. I'll show her by just me being me. Because he has the male privilege to do that. Yeah. He can just return to that. And he's the most obnoxious when he's skipping around. You know, to be honest, it, it reminds me of these cases that you read about in the news of like these undergraduate boys who are like accused of rape and then they're given no sentence like he, he's yeah. in no way is he punished for his behavior and she because he's such a promising young man Brian. yeah and she has the the wounds to show for it and all these people are you know hobnobbing and talking about how wonderful the music's going to be they all leave erica alone she reaches into her bag and pulls out the knife that we see her packing before we leave. She and we kind house. of think that she's left with that knife almost to enact revenge. She's going to be this kind of well, like avenging angel. Again, a cinematic trope that we're hoping will take place. What happens is everybody scurries up the stairs. You know, we were talking earlier about the Hanukkah's blankness and the way, it, you know, who bears blankness tells us much more than, you know, we're privy to understand. I felt pain anger resentment and futility in this moment her face also folds while she does this she stabs the knife briefly firmly into her shoulder leaving a cut in her clothing and seeping further red i felt in that moment where she stabs herself you know she says fuck everyone well she's also this character who everything that's inside her, I mean, the blood is like about what's pumping inside yeah, her that release. we can't see. It truly is release. She lets it out. She needs yeah. to let it out and to her detriment, you know, to everyone, but she's just going to keep doing it. And she walks out of the concert hall and the film ends into the streets of Vienna. 
I think up until this year, this film was probably Isabel Huppert's most famous performance. It is fantastic. Would you agree? Absolutely. She's probably surpassed herself this year with a with, ama- two, with two amazing performances, but very few actresses could surpass something as good as The Piano Teacher. I assume knocking on wood because we're recording this before the Oscar nominations. I pray to the gods, les dieux, les dieux des Oscars, that um, she will be nominated. But like, I think the thing is in Elle, although there are similar elements of like assault and the dynamic with her mother, Huppert and the character are just so in sync with their intelligence, their cunning, their control. But as Erica, although she presents this veneer of being in control, that damage comes through. Mm. Would you say? Oh, yeah. Did you enjoy The Piano Teacher, Brian? I did very much. I think it's one of those great adaptations which I was about to say is superior. I don't think it's superior. I think they both achieve very strong and potent stories using the cinematic art and the literary art. I think you're right. I think it's a wonderful example of uh, two mediums nestling up side by side together. And, Sean, we had two amazing women playing Schubert two episodes in a row. I know. Who was the last one? Barbara Hershey. As? Madame Mel. That's right. You know what else I found out? What? Did you know that Barbara Hershey won the Cannes Best Actress back-to-back? For what? For a film called Shy People and then another film called A World Apart. And just like Isabel Huppert, who won the Cannes Best Actress Award for this film, they love Schubert. That's great. I've never heard of either of those movies. Maybe we should watch them. Do you know who else won the Cannes Best Actress Prize? Bjork. And Cher. Yeah. High five, Brian. Yes. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> Do you know who's never won the Cannes Best Actress Madonna. Prize? Madonna. Madonna. Chica- Yet. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, it still could happen. All right. We, I think, highly recommend anyone to go out and watch The Piano Teacher, although... It's not date night. No. <laughs> it's definitely not date night. Unless you're engaging in the kind of courtship that Sean slash Walter Klemmer engaged with during his courtship of me, which is coming on strong like a horny puppy dog. Sean, what's our... Then regretting everything. <laughs> okay. Sean, what is the next book and film that we will be looking at? Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Adapted into the best picture winning film by Alfred Hitchcock. I think that's our first best picture winner we've ever done, is it? We'll fact check that. I'm going to say yes. Yes, so come back in two weeks where we will be going back in time to black and white, 1940, Rebecca with some gothic horror. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to follow us, you really, really should go on to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. All the episodes will come directly into your feed. While you're there, why don't you leave us a rating or review? We'd appreciate it. Oh, yes, please do. You can also find us on www.broadappealpod.com. And on Twitter, it's at broadappealpod. And at Sean McGovern X and at B.A. Mullins Peace. All right, Sean, I think it's time for you to practice your fingering. Oh, yeah? I'm going to tune you up first. Okay, diminuendo, babe. Diminuendo. Okay. All right, see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.